0: All right. Well, good morning. So good to see you all here and be together today. Welcome. My name is Matt, and I'm one of the pastors here at FBC. If you're new, if I haven't met you yet, we'd love to have a chance to meet you. I know that it's not always easy coming to a new place, especially a church you're unfamiliar with. So I'm so glad that you were willing to come out and, and celebrate Christmas Eve here with us today. So as we uh, get ready to jump into the message, uh, would you pray with me? Father, we want to come to you now and say thank you. Thank you, God, for your grace and for your love. Thank you for your presence here with us. Thank you that we could come and worship you and celebrate Christmas. Jesus, thank you that you came to us, that you came to save. You came to restore and heal all that was lost and broken. God, we pray that you would take this time and use it for your glory and for our good and the good of your world. Lord, speak to us through your word today. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, on the seats in front of you, uh, underneath the seat, there should be a Bible, or we'll have the words on the screen behind me. Uh, Luke chapter 2, and while you're turning there, um, I want to share with you that this year, Amber and I did something that we had never done before in our previous six years of marriage, our previous six Christmases. This year, for the first time, we bought a real Christmas tree. Anybody else with us in the, the real Christmas tree crowd? Okay, a few people, great. We went to Costco and got a $32 tree that was massive giant, the biggest tree we've ever had. It was incredible. I know a lot of people went to Larry's possibly, produce up in Fairfield area, got a tree there. And then there were some people that are fake tree people. Any fake tree people willing to admit it? Wow, that was, you were proud of that. Sometimes when you mention a fake tree or you tell someone you bought a fake tree it kind of feels like you're like admitting or confessing to shoplifting or something, and you're like, I'm not proud of it, but that's what we had to do. Like, you have to take a shower afterwards. It just feels dirty. But, um, but then some people are really proud of their fake tree because it's financially savvy, and it's easy to clean up, and things like that. And so we have different preferences when it comes to Christmas trees, but there was a new Christmas tree trend I learned about this year hadn't heard before. Have you heard of the upside down Christmas tree trend? Yeah? Okay, so I'd never heard of that. Apparently it's a thing. It's trendy and it, it is what it sounds like. It's an upside down Christmas tree. And so we got a picture here of said trees. If you haven't seen one, it, yeah, it looks the way it sounds. Kind of weird though, right? Yeah. A little bit off, not Quite what it's supposed to be, I mean, I guess it makes it harder for pets and stuff to get at the ornaments and things like that. It uh, saves some room in the house, I guess. I don't anyone here have an upside down tree? Well, no. Okay, so all right, but it's a thing. and just learn about it. So as I was preparing for this Sunday and this message and looking through Luke chapter two, the Christmas story, I, I was reading and realizing how so much of the passage seems upside down, seems a bit out of sorts or a bit odd, not quite the way we would expect it to go. And so as we celebrate Christmas, I wanted us to kind of unpack that together and read through the story, and I'll show you what I mean, this upside down nature of Christmas. I'm going to start reading in verse 1 of Luke chapter 2. It says this, And suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. So here we have the Christmas story, the events of that first Christmas the story that we remember and celebrate every year, the story that Linus so beautifully quoted in A Charlie Brown Christmas, quotes directly from Luke chapter 2 and says, Charlie Brown, this is what Christmas is all about. And as we read through it, of course, we're struck by the miraculous in it, kind of the Spectacular. I mean, the glory of the Lord shining in the night sky, angels speaking to these shepherds that are terrified, this message of joy for all the world, of peace for all the world that a Savior has been born, and then a company of heavenly hosts singing praises to God. I mean, the whole thing is just spectacular, miraculous, otherworldly almost. Pastor C.H. Spurgeon said it this way, the greatest and most momentous fact which the history of the world records is the fact of Christ's birth. It's unparalleled. There's nothing like it. But as we look at some of the details of the story that we just read, we see that much of the story, again, doesn't quite add up, or it's a little bit upside down, a little bit odd. We see Joseph, who along with everyone else in the Roman world, is returning to his hometown of sorts for tax purposes to be registered. And so he travels from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And the text tells us in verse 5, he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. This is the first detail that's a little bit odd. Mary and Joseph were betrothed or a form of engagement, but they had not yet been married. And we find out that she's pregnant. Earlier in the book of Luke, in chapter one, we read that this is a act of God. It's a a miracle. The Holy Spirit has come upon her and she's conceived. But to those around her who maybe heard that story, it sounds a little far-fetched. Again, I don't know if they would really believe this message because there's, there's one way that pregnancies happen. And so they'd say, Mary, this isn't very believable. And if Joseph says he's not the father, then who was? See, it's a kind of scandalous message. It would be so today, but especially in the first century world, in the Jewish world, this would be looked at as a result of, of sin, It would result in shame, likely rumors, likely this would be socially suspect. People would look at Mary and this new child to be born kind of with a side eye, not sure about them or their status. And so already, as we read through, there's this morally questionable societal nature to these events. We read on. The child is born, and then verse 7, she, Mary wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. See, the town of Bethlehem was likely overcrowded because of this census that was being done. And likely Mary and Joseph would have sought to maybe stay with family or friends in a guest room of sorts. But the text tells us that there's no proper place for them to stay, no proper room, no comfortable guest bed, no resort amenities. And so we have this baby whose birth is proclaimed by angels in a magnificent, glorious way, and yet he's born in his first bed is a manger, which is a, a feeding trough for animals. No proper lodging. Likely Mary and Joseph are on the floor somewhere among the family cow and other animals that would be around with them with all the smells and the mess and the lowliness that that would bring. And when you think about that compared to the way some world leaders travel today with suitcase after suitcase and caravan and security detail and all kinds of planning and comforts around them. Nice hotels, demands of the like. But here we see this king has been born, the savior, and he's laying in a manger amongst animals with no proper place to sleep. It's not glamorous. It's not exactly the neat little nativity scene that we have in some of our living rooms. Very humble beginnings. When we read on, we see there's this angelic Pronouncement, but look in verse 8 who the announcement is given to. Verse 8 says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. And so we have Jesus, the Savior of the world, the King of kings, born, and the first to hear about it. Are these shepherds who were looked down upon by the cultural elites, who were kind of sneered at or loathed by religious folks in a lot of ways. They're not really the movers and shakers of the day. You know, They have no kind of power, no social influence. They aren't exactly the first group you would go to if you wanted a message to spread or to celebrate something. And so before the magi from the east, these wise men arrive with their gifts of royalty, before that takes place, the first on the scene are these lowly shepherds who are out watching their flock by night. And so when we combine these details and we take this text as a whole, we see this shady pregnancy, no proper room, no proper bed, but a manger where Jesus lays these shepherds as the first witnesses, we again think this is kind of upside down. This is not exactly what we would expect. I mean, if this really is the most momentous, meaningful, impactful event in all of history, God himself coming to walk among us, coming to save, wouldn't we expect it to be a little more flashy, a little more of a to-do, a little more recognized. I mean, at least a security detail, at least a journalist from the local newspaper coming out to write something about it. I mean, alert the media and spread the word in palaces worldwide. This king is born. I mean, at least could we get a socially acceptable set of parents and maybe a comfortable, warm bed to sleep in, maybe a little bit of recognition, a headline in the paper tomorrow, I don't know. But instead, we have the most humble beginnings, this baby born, lying in a manger, with no one but lowly shepherds as witnesses in this little town of Bethlehem. It's upside down, but it still fills us with awe. It still fills us with wonder. And we see in the text as well, these miraculous words, a message that changes the world. In the midst of the ordinary, we see the truly spectacular. We see this in the text as well. Because in verse 10, the angels speak to the shepherds. And what do they say? They say, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. The angels announcing good news for the world. And we love to hear Good news, don't we? I still remember the day that I found out my wife was pregnant. That was a good day. To hear that message brought joy and fear. (laughs) But joy, maybe you can uh, relate to a family member being pregnant and celebrating that news. Maybe you got a call from the doctor and found out the test results came back negative. It's good news learned a family member was gonna pull through a difficult medical situation, it was good news. Maybe you heard from your boss that you're gonna get a promotion or you're gonna get a raise, it was good news. Maybe your sports team won, good news. You know, we love to hear good news. And so this angel comes on the scene and announces to these shepherds good news, but not just for them or for their family, But good news for the entire world, it says. Good news of great joy for all people. It'll be cause for the world to rejoice. Why? Verse 11, it continues, because today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. So it says, this is good news because the Messiah Has come, or some translations would say Christ the Lord. This word in Hebrew, Messiah, would mean the anointed one. See, in the Old Testament, when someone was appointed to a special task, a prophet, a priest, a king, something like that, they would be anointed with oil as a symbolic representation of their call to this task, how God was going to use them in some special way, but the Old Testament always looked forward to not just any anointed one, but the anointed one, the Messiah that would come and be the perfect or the ultimate prophet, priest, and king, the ultimate savior who would save his people. And so the angel here is announcing that promise that God made over and over again throughout the Old Testament. He's keeping that promise in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah, the anointed one. And that's good news. And the amazing truth about this Messiah is that he's not just a human ruler. The good news, it says, is that this Jesus is the Lord. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord God himself come down to us. It's been said before that a thousand times in history, a baby has become a king, but only once did a king become a baby. It's this incredible truth that God himself, the creator and sustainer of life, of everything that there is, was born of the Virgin Mary, stepped into time and space, stepped into our world as a baby. As a new dad, that truth is even more spectacular as I've now witnessed a birth and a a child that is just moments old, how small, fragile, tiny they are. I mean, I normally don't like to hold babies because I'm afraid that I'm going to break them. So I'm like, no, just keep them over there. But with my own daughter, of course, I, I held her. But it's scary. They're so small, And so we have this incredible truth that the Lord of glory himself who fashioned the earth and the galaxies and the universe with his hands somehow stepped into our world as a baby, that this Jesus, this child that was born is God with us, walking among us. When God wanted to communicate his love to the world, rather than sending a blimp with a message of salvation in the sky for us all to read, he came As a person, he came himself to save and restore. It's good news. And the good news of this pronouncement is not just that this Jesus is Messiah, that this Jesus is the Lord who will dwell with us and walk with us. This is good news because he came to save us. That's what we see in Luke chapter 2. The message from the angel, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born. A Savior. Not just a a buddy or a role model. Not just a perfect life to emulate or a a good example of how to live. Not just someone who's going to teach you about love and, and teach you how to forgive others. He would do those things, of course, but at the heart of Christmas is the truth that this baby that was born would ultimately die for the sins of the world. He came to save. To save us from what? From, from death, from sin, from judgment, from the just condemnation of a holy God on sin and evil to save us by forgiving our sins, by giving us new life and restoring us back into a right relationship with this God all through faith in Christ, not through our own work or accomplishments. He would die so that we would live. See, the the president at uh, Denver Seminary, his name is Mark Young, when I was there in school, and he shared the story one time of this gift he got at Christmas. It was an ornament, as we often give ornaments as gifts. It's a great gift. But this ornament was a little different than normal. It was a long metal spike, kind of a a nail of sorts that would be used in a Roman crucifixion to pin the hands and feet of a criminal against a cross. And at first he thought, this is so very odd, such a strange gift to reflect on death and a violent death at that, at the time of Christmas. It's such a joyous occasion to think about such a, a horrible reality. It was one of those ornaments that was quite heavy. You know, the type where you can't put it at the end of the branch or else it'll fall off. It was really weighty. It had something to it. So he had to put it towards the trunk of the tree. But he said, as he, as he thought about it and as he and his family together reflected on and he thought about how fitting this ornament is because it reminds us, it reminded him that at Christmas time we're pointed to the cross. When we think about the beginning of the life of Jesus, we have to have in mind the end or why he came. He was born to give his life on the cross. He came to die. This is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus is Lord, but Jesus is Savior, came to forgive and redeem a broken world. And this message is for all people, good news for all nations, for whoever would believe in him. And so friends, at Christmas, we remember both the spectacular world-changing, awe-inspiring message of good news, of a savior for the entire, entire world in Jesus Christ. And we remember the somewhat upside down, humble, lowly way that it came about. And I think we see these two truths together because it reminds us, God reminds us that the message of Christmas is not just for the influential or the powerful or the culturally the cultural elite those in lofty influential places in society the message of christmas is not just for those who have it all together those who have the most polished instagram pictures out there those with the successful family those without blemishes on their record or shame in their past. No, this reminds us that Christmas is for the rest of us. As we read the Christmas story, I think we're reminded of our own story because we can relate to the manger. We can relate to the lowly shepherds, the overlooked shepherds maybe the somewhat questionable past that we have, maybe the stigma of sexual sin in our past, maybe the stigma of divorce or being depressed or having anxiety or the pain of loss or failure, or whatever it might be that's in our past, the message of Christmas reminds us that rather than that somehow excluding us from the grace and presence of God, it reminds us that that is, in fact, where God meets us. It's where God steps into his world in the brokenness, in the, the stench of the manger scene. To the lowly shepherds and the questionable parents. I mean, the message of Christmas really is a picture of God's MO. That we see this glory and awe-inspiring, life-transforming, world-changing message of grace coming to us in the midst of the dark, lowly, humble places. And just like God came to us that first Christmas, we trust that he still is present in our lives in those places today. He still is Emmanuel, God with us. No matter where we are, or where we've been, or what we've done, God's grace is there, offered to us in Christ, if we would believe and follow him. There's often this talk around Christmas time about how to celebrate Christmas the right way. We want it to be just right as we stress and we go to great lengths to get the perfect Christmas gift. You know the feeling? I stress out over Christmas gifts. I do, because I want it to be just right. We make sure that our gifts communicate the level of love or thought or affection that we want to give to that person. Or we make sure that people's gifts are equal and we're not letting one grandkid or one child maybe be favored. We want to give equal gifts. Make sure that Christmas dinner is just right or that the family gathering isn't too awkward. No one brings up politics. Hopefully we can dodge that bullet. Or we care too much about the Starbucks cup and what it says or doesn't say because we want things to be just right. Famous Christian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was a pastor and author in Germany back during World War II. And he reflected on this question of what does it mean to celebrate Christmas the right way? And he said this, who among us will celebrate Christmas correctly? It's the right way to do it. He says, whoever finally lays down all power, all honor, all reputation, all vanity, all arrogance, all individualism beside the manger. Whoever remains lowly and lets God alone be high. So how do we celebrate Christmas correctly? As we come to the manger, we come to worship this Savior, we come and we lay down our pride and in great humility, we recognize that this Jesus was born as Savior, Lord, Messiah, and King. We have the great joy to worship him together today. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for, again, time together. Thank you for your word that reminds us who you are and what you have done. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to save for entering into our world in the most unexpected way, for meeting us in the most unexpected places. Thank you for your grace and your love. Pray that you'd be glorified as we sing to you and celebrate you, Jesus, that you are the savior of the world. It's in your name we pray. Amen.